Okay, so we are uh, getting to a part of the book of Ruth where so many things are coming together, and so we have to kind of do a little bit review as we've done every week, but as well as in that review, go a little bit further so I can show you specifically what the text says in some specific spots because it, it will be incredibly important for today. So the book of Ruth begins, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, Judges is a time marker. It's 1,200 years before the time of Jesus. But more importantly than that, it is a time of complete political, kind of social and um, spiritual chaos and unrest. Things are bad. And that's directly tied in to the next underlying word, that there's a famine in the land. At this point in history, we are dealing with Israel as they live in the promised land. And in the old covenant, Israel was to obey God. And if they did, the terms of the covenant said that God would pour out blessings upon the actual land. And so in the Mosaic Law, the Sinaitic Covenant, sometimes it's called, there are terms. Israel, you obey while you're in the land, and then the land will produce food. So the fact that there's a mention of famine in the land tells you that there's not only a, a physical famine, but there's also a spiritual famine. Now, I want to review with you the specific words and images that are associated with the blessings according to Deuteronomy. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord, your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of the cattle and the increase of your herds and of the young of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall be when you go out. So again, if Israel obeys God while they live in Israel, the promised land, the covenant says that they'll be blessed with food. Now, as some of you know from the past week, the famine is ending in Bethlehem. There's food, there's abundance, which means there's like, there's uh, faithfulness, there is repentance, and you're seeing the signs of the blessings. But if you were to read this, it's mostly about like food and cattle, but there's also something else listed. Did you catch it? There's the fruit of the womb, fruit of the ground, and of the cattle. Part of this idea is that everything becomes fertile in Israel. And so if you're an ancient reader approaching the book of Ruth, when you hear about the return of bread to the house of bread, you are also anticipating abundance, life, flourishing, children, babies which is incredibly important because if you were here for Ruth chapter 1, you recall that one of the big problems in the book is what? There's a woman who doesn't have an heir, doesn't have children, and all the sons have died. So in the days when judges ruled, there's famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem, the house of bread, which is in Judah, the promised land, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now recall Moab, for the first readers of this document, they would have just been repulsed. That a so-called faithful Israelite man named Elimelech, which means God is king, does something that is so unlike someone who's named God as king. He goes to Moab. And so in Judges 3, in this time period, we read how the people of Moab oppressed the people of Israel. In Numbers 25, we read about how the men of Israel practiced sexual immorality with the women of Moab, and they were invited in to worship the gods of Moab like Chemish, and they did. In Numbers 22, the king of Moab pronounces a curse through a diviner upon 
Israel. But most importantly, if you recall, is the origin story of Moab, which occurs in Genesis 19, where there is an incestuous, sexually immoral relationship that produces a child named Moab from father. I want to show you Genesis 19, because what's developed in there specifically applies to today. Genesis 19, Sodom is being destroyed because of wickedness and rebellion. Lot is saved, he's spared, and he ends up fleeing to the hills to live. And it records this. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and he will lie down with him. And we will lie down with him, that we may preserve offspring for our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know where she lay down and when she arose. Okay. This is the beginning story. This is what people would have in mind as they encounter this journey of Elimelech to Moab. Now in this, pay, pay attention to all the details. There's this idea that there's, there's no other way to have children. There's no other way to have offspring, so we must devise a plot, a manipulative plot. And in that manipulative plot, wine is involved. Secrecy in the middle of the night is involved. There is a disguise. Lot doesn't know what's going on. So they drink, the father goes to sleep, and then the daughter lays with their father. Now again... Um, that is a euphemistic term that, for the most part, means sexual relationships. So there is an incestuous, sexually immoral relationship that occurs in disguise in the night involving wine. Keep that in mind. Back to our story of Ruth. After this man, Elimelech, goes to Moab, his two sons, Malhon and Kilion, they marry two Moabite women. One is named Orpah, the other name's Ruth. And tragedy upon tragedy happens, and all the men die, the father and the two sons. So what you have left is Naomi, the mother, and her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. Orpah goes back to Moab, but Ruth, it says, clings to Naomi. She says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. In other words, Ruth begins to not only swear allegiance to her mother-in-law, but to the God of Israel. And with that, these two widows go back to the promised land in desperation and destitution. They will go back to glean among the fields. Ruth will work hard from sunup to sundown, collecting leftovers from the harvest in order to provide sustenance for herself and her mother-in-law. As they enter back into the promised land, there's a little bit of good news that's recorded at the introduction of chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. We're introduced to Boaz. He's a worthy man. If you remember in Hebrew, Gibor Chayil. And Ruth in our story is depicted as a worthy woman in Ishet Chayil. And this worthy man sees that Ruth is gleaning and he actually orders his men to protect her. It gives you a clue of how brutal the time of the judges were. He says, protect her and let her glean, don't, don't harass her. 
And so Ruth notices this special care provision that she's received from Boaz. And she says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Verse 12, really important. He prays a blessing. The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz notices her character. He sees that she is caring for her mother-in-law. She has no obligation to do this. She's doing it out of an abundance of chesed, as we've reviewed in the past. He notices her character, and then he prays this blessing that you would be given a full reward by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The Hebrew word for wings here is kanaf, and it means wings, but it can also mean the corner of a garment, and you can see how that, that can make sense of things, because like, you can think about like a, a eagle covering her young with, the, with her wings, but also you can picture like if someone has a jacket on, wrapping it up, a loose-fitting jacket around a child, like the garment covers them in the same manner that a wing will. So may you find a full reward by the God of Israel under whose kanaf, wings, garment, you have to take refuge. Okay, which brings us to chapter 3. And it all is about to go down. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, whose young women you were, whose, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Okay, we've got to get this set up right as we move forward. So it's sort of weird, but Naomi's like, he's... He's a relative of ours. And she's made that suggestion multiple times. He's also referred to, she's also referring to him as a redeemer because he's a relative. And so there's this idea in the Hebrew scriptures of a kinsman redeemer, a relative who functions as a redeemer. And that kind of idea of being a relative who redeems can manifest in a number of ways. One way in particular has to do with land redemption. It's real, who owns the land is really important in the Old Covenant system, it needs to stick with a particular family and a clan in a particular tribe. And that's described in, in the Old Testament. And so if land, for whatever reason, is lost or it's sold because someone is in poverty and in destitution, they have to sell land. Or let's say they move to Moab and then they come back and there's other people working the land. There is a way for a kinsman redeemer to buy back and restore the land to the original owner so that it stays in the family. That's one way this redeemer idea works. <clears throat> Another way is called leveret marriage. And leveret marriage is super bizarre for us, but again, for ancient people, not just in ancient Israel, but in many ancient Near Eastern cultures, and in some cultures still to this day, if there is a woman who is married and the husband dies, she becomes a widow without children and she has no one else in the system to care for her, then the leveret marriage, leveret from lever, Latin brother-in-law, the brother-in-law of the man who is now deceased marries that woman, cares for her, provides protection, as well as gives, the fam gives her children in order that then those children would be raised under the name of the deceased brother so the lineage of the deceased is not forever lost. Now again, modern people, some of these things like, aren't important. Like, what, what's the lineage matter? It's just like, you know, it's just the last, like, you got to understand ancient people, this is very important. So one way you could be a kinsman redeemer is 
as a brother-in-law, you would marry the widow and become her husband, care for her, and provide for her, and raise those children in the name of the deceased brother. Another way you could perform this kind of idea of being a kinsman redeemer is just in a general sense, that the customs of the land of ancient Israel said that if someone is in need, it falls upon the people who are closest in relationship to them as family to provide care and provision for these people. So it's like family needs to take care of family, and you could just redeem them in that way. Okay. Now, that's the setup. We don't know what's going on in Naomi's mind. We don't know exactly what she's about to kind of articulate. All we know is that she's saying, there's good news. This guy, Boaz, who took notice of you, he's a relative. He can be a redeemer. And then she outlines this. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. All right. Every one of these directions is super important. First, wash therefore and anoint yourself. Ruth might be still in a state of mourning, which in the ancient Near Eastern world, she would have official mourning clothes saying, I'm recently widowed. It's coming down. Blessings in the land. Um, So this idea that Ruth is um, in a state of mourning, she might be saying, leave that state of mourning, wash and anoint yourself. But even if it's not a state of mourning, at minimum, you know Ruth is working sun up to sundown, gleaning, working hard. And so now her mother-in-law is like, you need to wash and anoint yourself. Now this anointing isn't for like religious ritual purposes. This is like the modern day equivalent to perfume. Like, wash yourself and put on some perfume. So already, as a reader, you should be going like, what? What? Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. The threshing floor is the place where Boaz is at. Picture a a raised surface that's a hard surface, and you would take all the barley and you would pound it. And so the idea is that you would break away the outer husk, the chaff from the edible part, and then you would get something like a pitchfork and throw it in the air. And as the wind comes... The chaff blows and the edible part stays. She's like, Boaz is at the threshing floor. It's the end of the harvest. Go to him. But do not make yourself known. There's a secrecy to this. Go in the middle of the night, in disguise, in secret. And then very important detail, after he's finished eating and drinking, because if this plot is going to work, he's got to be in a good mood. And Naomi is wise enough to know, make sure that man's eating. He might be in a bad mood. So he's eaten and he's drinking. Verse 4, But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go uncover his feet. Which is sort of weird. Like, not sort of weird. That's like really weird, right? Like, what? what? Uncover his feet? Okay. So, the Hebrew word here for feet means foot. means foot, feet. Okay, no big deal there. But the image of foot and that word is used in a variety of ways. Sometimes when you encounter that word in the Hebrew Scriptures, it can refer to just literally like feet, the bottom of your legs. But it can also be used to refer to all of your legs. Or it can also be used to refer to like your upper thighs. Or it could be used where it has a sexual connotation, dealing with the body in certain places. 
For example, in Deuteronomy 28, it speaks of babies coming from between the feet. So, within that one little word, you have this range of meaning that's just like, look, feet, you know, to, like, what is going on here? And then there's further description. It says, watch where he lies down, and then you go lie down with him. Now, lie down, again, in Hebrew, can just mean lay down next to somebody. But I could tell you, if you looked at every time that word is used, when it's used in a way that's referring to anyone lying next to an individual, the vast majority of time it's functioning in a euphemistic way that's referring to sexual relationships. You want to know the first chapter in which this phrase appears in the scriptures? Take a wild guess. Genesis chapter 19, with the destruction of Sodom, the angels wanting to know the men, and then Lot fleeing, and that the language all throughout that passage is a repetition of laying down. Sometimes the phrase uh, to know somebody is used, also a euphemistic phrase. So it's, it's like foot. It's like, well, it just means lay down. Or it can mean something like, you know, what's go- going on. And at this point, this is the brilliance of the book. Because like, well, what is it? You're, what's going on here, you know? And Ruth is, the book of Ruth is going like, I'm, I'm being ambiguous on purpose. You're going, you're supposed to go, what in the world? What is going on here? What precisely is going on here? Now, um, to be clear, I actually think this plot is literally just uncovering the literal feet and actually laying down next to the man. However, that does not diminish what's occurring. Why? Because there is a Moabite woman who's coming in the middle of the night approaching the wealthy Jewish landowner, and she's put on perfume, and she's taken off his, the covering of his feet and is lying down next to him. No matter what, I'm telling you, for a woman to do that in the ancient Near Eastern world, that is scandalous. So even if it's just the most minimalistic interpretation, you're still meant to go as the reader, dude, what is going on here? Now, um, does this story sound familiar? So, There's a Moabite who in secrecy of night goes after eating and drinking and in the middle of the night uncovers the feet of a man and lays with him. Does this remind you of a different Moabite story? See, the book is is, is is building tension. What is this woman doing? What type of woman is this? What type of, and, and you, if you're one of the first readers, you go, yep, she turned out, we thought she was cool, but turns out she's going to be one of those Moabites after all. Remember, because um, there was an issue about having a child. There's no way to make a proper heir, and we need a child, so a plot is devised, and the plot involves sexual immorality, deception, wine, and secrecy of night. Do you see this? Do you see this? So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went to lie down on the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. 
He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. So Ruth does like exactly what she's told to do. It's midnight. It's the secrecy of night. He doesn't know who she is. And at this point, like the tension is there. See, the writers of the Bible are people who are saturated in the stories of the Bible. So sometimes you could just read a story and you're just looking at it from one angle, but they have this story in mind and this story in mind and this story in mind and all those other stories bear on this passage that you're reading. Okay, so let's, let's, let's review. Need a child, middle of the night, eating, drinking, secrecy, a sexual immoral plot. And you're, almost, you're, you're set up to think, this is what's going to go, this is, this is how Ruth and Naomi get an heir. This is how they get a child. Okay, but there's more. There's a lot more. On one side, you have Ruth playing into almost like the archetypical reality of the first Moabite. The Moabite mom is the first one, and she's like repeating that pattern. But then on the other side, you have Boaz. There's some things you need to know about Boaz. He lives in Bethlehem. He's of the tribe of Judah. And he also has a backstory. Let's go to sort of the the founding father. If we looked at the founding mother of the Moabites, let's look at the founding father of the tribe of Judah, the Judites. His name is Judah. And in Genesis chapter 38... He has a son named Ur, and his son Ur marries a woman named Tamar. Ur dies, and Judah says, we're going to do that leveret marriage thing, and I'm going to provide for you my second son, and he will marry to you and give you child. His name is Onan. So part of the deal was, is that you were supposed to give this woman a family, but also you were supposed to provide and care and nurture. Which, if you don't know, in the ancient Near Eastern world, if a woman is widowed, her, her plight is just beyond horrible. There isn't like, if you don't have that support system, it's going to be very, very bad. So this is the way ancient people tried to, to solve this. Now, Onan is the son that is then supposed to be involved in a leveret marriage with Tamar. And this is what the scriptures record. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law. That's the lever of marriage. And raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death. Okay. So, this is, it's mature and it's explicit, but this is important, incredibly important. What is occurring? There is a broken and hurting woman, Tamar. She has no protection, no care, no provision. There is, that doesn't exist in the ancient Near Eastern world. And Onan is supposed to do this leveret marriage thing, but what does he do? He essentially takes this hurting, broken woman who is a widow and he uses her for her, his own sexual pleasure, but refuses to do anything else. He is using and abusing her and taking advantage of that system in order to get sexual pleasure and not do anything else for this woman. Now, pretty crazy. How did God respond to that? 
He killed them. Do you want to know how much God hates this type of stuff? So it's like fair warning. Don't be like this guy in any way. God hates this behavior. He kills Onan. Okay, so this is Boaz's family. So what is, what is the, the kind of beginning story of the tribe of Judah? What's it begin with? It begins with a widow who has no child, and the people from the tribe of Judah use the woman for sexual pleasure but do not provide provision or care. Okay, now let's go back to where we're at in our story. Are you kidding me? In the secrecy of night on the threshing floor, there is the Judahite, and on the other side you have the Moabite. And everything in you, if you know the stories of the scripture, you go, dude, this is bad. This is really bad. The secrecy night, drinking, wine, in disguise. What is, what is Ruth going to do? She's going to manipulate the situation so that she could receive child. And then on the other end, what do you think Boaz is going to do? You've been thinking he's this Gibor Ha'il, this man of valor the whole time, right? But what is, what is he going to do when he has the same situation occur that's in his family's history? Well, there's a couple. One, um, he could, here's his options. He could say, Ruth, you Moabite. I showed you mercy and grace and protection and provision, and you do exactly what your people always do. Like, depart type of thing. Or he could try to have sex right there. I mean, he, the, the situation, by all standards, it's like, it's, what, what am I being asked to do specifically? You know, he could say, okay, I like you, Ruth, you know, I love you so much. We're married in our hearts. And not take upon any of the duties of trying to be a redeemer for this family, trying to provide any care or protection. Or it's certainly possible, especially in the time of the judges, you need to know that it's not out of the question for the book of Judges in this time period to see something like Boaz forcing himself upon Ruth. So let's say Ruth says, this, this wasn't the message I was trying to send. No, no one's going to believe her story. You're telling me a Moabite woman washed herself, put on perfume, and in the middle of the night, in secrecy, went and laid down next to Boaz. No one's going to believe that story. And so this, like, what is Boaz going to do? At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, spread your wings, does that sound familiar? So this is the same word for wings, kanaf, that we talked about earlier. So she is literally, in one sense, saying, spread your wings, like Boaz doesn't have wings. But no, no, take the edge of your garment, take your garment and cover me. Now, this idea of covering is important because in the scriptures, to uncover something often refers to the uncovering of nakedness and also, again, kind of get the pattern, refers to something sexual. But she is not asking for an uncovering. There's an uncovering of his feet, but then there's a, put your wing over me. She's asking for something. Take me in. You prayed. You prayed for the God of Israel, 
that, that I would find shelter in his wings. And now there's a way for me to find shelter in his wings. You prayed for this occur, to occur. And now, Boaz, you could be the means and mechanism by which God answers your own prayer. Let the God of Israel cover me with his wings and you covering me with your wing. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, this chesed, greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen. Know that you are a worthy woman. The, Boaz does what's right. Ruth does what's right. And he calls her a worthy woman. Now, if you've been here for the past three weeks, you know this idea is that she's an Ishet Hayil, which is described in Proverbs 31. The like ideal Ishet Hayil, the ideal excellent woman, is depicted in Proverbs chapter 31. And if that's one of your favorite parts of the Bible, you know that the description of the Ishet Hayil, the excellent woman in Proverbs 31, ends with the Proverbs 31 woman being praised at the gates. Now, interesting note. Verse 11, and my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask for my fellow townsmen. Fellow townsmen, literally in Hebrew, is something like the whole people at the gate. All the people at the gate know. They praise your works. They know you are a worthy woman. This is the echo of Proverbs 31. Now, then, it's all good news. Pretty good so far, right? Uh, Then there's an introduction of a final problem. And now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So there appears to be a custom in Bethlehem at this time, in the time of Judges, that says there's a duty for the closest family member to provide redemption for the land for the family, for Naomi, all of this stuff. We don't get the exact details of what it looks like, but Boaz is like, no, let me, I have to address this problem first. We have to go about this the right way and check everything off the list, which again tells you the type of class act this guy is. Because he could have totally pulled one of those, okay, I got to figure this stuff out in the morning, but you know, you, dude, you know, you know I love you. You're so beautiful. We're married in our hearts, so can we just... Do the have sex and we'll no. He doesn't do it. He does the right thing. He does things in their proper order. It's incredibly important. When you see a depiction of the Gibor Hayel, he does things in proper order. We'll deal with how Boaz is going to solve this problem because he's gonna he's gonna solve the problem. That's the conclusion to the book, and that'll be next week. But for now, we return back to the particular passage, and it says, So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring me the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Okay. Super important. He measures out six measures of barley and gives it to her. Now, there's two things going on here. One, you need to know that six measures of, of barley in Hebrew isn't like a, a quantity. It's not like an omer, an omer or something like that. It literally says something like six barleys. But you know he's not giving her like, hey, let me hook you up. Here's six barleys. 
but it's like intentionally ambiguous again. And Ruth loves to be intentionally ambiguous. That's what the book does. That's what the author is doing. So it's just as like six of something. It could be six buckets of barley, six handfuls of barley. We don't know. We don't know. It's just six. And sometimes when the Bible uses numbers, it, it's, it's, it's to just record um, an important detail that's like, you need to know it was six, so it wasn't just like one little handful. But sometimes there's more going on. One of the other things that's going on is Boaz is sending her back with provision. Food. Do you see the reversing of the order of his family? The people would typically, they're going for sex, but not providing. Boaz again does things in the right order, and he, before any sex takes place, is giving protection and provision and care. And it's in abundance. And, he t- and, and listen to what happens. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for this man will not rest, uh, but will settle the matter today. All right, so, incredibly important. She comes back and he says, He's given me all of this, these six barleys, because he said, you will not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. If you've been tracking with this, Naomi told the women of the village to call her something new. Do you remember? Mara, which is bitter. Because I went away full and have returned empty. Now because of Boaz, not just Ruth is going to be cared for. Boaz is the Gibor Hail that's saying, Ruth, this isn't just about, it's not just me getting to marry you. I'm going to reclaim the land. I'm going to marry you. And I am going to provide for your family, even your mother-in-law. Take this back with her. She's no longer empty. She is full. Do you see how this, this is, this is what a Gibor Hail does. This is important, men, especially you young men. They don't indulge just their, their wants and desires. Boaz, first and foremost, cares, provides, protects. He sends it with demonstrable action. That's chesed. So, then this is what's crazy. Okay, and I don't know if this next part, I can't be certain. Some of you will be like, nah, Isaac, that's too much. It's not. It's right. It's right. It fully is. Okay. So, remember, it's like there's six, six measures of barley, or six barleys. That's ambiguous, because it's not important. Whether it's a bucket or a handful, it's important that it's six. Um, and it's repeated twice. Like there's emphasis. When scripture repeats things like this, it's usually pretty important. And uh, she goes back and she's like, man, there's six, six measures. And li- listen to what Naomi says. She's like, oh man, okay, this is great. This man's gonna take care of this. Six, if you know, in, in kind of Hebrew thought, it's, it's not the best number. It's not the best number. It's an incomplete number. Seven is the number of wholeness and completion. So it's possible and I actually think this is what Boaz is doing. He's giving demonstrable symbolic action. He says, go back to your mother-in-law and show how I am providing. There's six measures, but there's still one more blessing that remains. This won't just be about provision of food and gleaning. I'm going to redeem in every sense of the word, the land, the mother-in-law, and Ruth will have child. So Boaz is saying, 
one more blessing still remains to make this number complete. Now, why do I think that's the case? Because look at how Naomi interprets the... Look at what she does. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but it will be settled today. It's going to be solved, man. The Gibor Hayil is going to take care of business. He's going to put everything in line. Okay, now, what do we see in this? We see the Moabite and the Judite break the patterns that they inherited because of their families. Ruth has all this stuff in her family lineage. Boaz has all of this stuff. But when you get a Gibor Hayil and Ishet Hayil, they break the patterns. They break the patterns which is incredibly important because I'm sure we come from all different places in this room. Some of us had great upbringings. We had great parents. Some of us came from hard upbringings, hard life, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. And it's very easy to fall into the exact same patterns that our parents did because sometimes our parents fall into the patterns that their parents did and our grandparents followed into the patterns that their great, our great-grandparents did. And patterns just repeat and they cycle through. And sometimes you just inherit stuff. But what you see in Boaz and Ruth is a breaking of the pattern. Ruth, the Moabite, Boaz, the Judahite, they do what's right and they do things in proper order. And in doing so, reverse the narrative structure of the origin story of the Moabites and the Judahites. This is a picture um, from a legendary story called St. George and the Dragon. Some of you might be familiar with it. Briefly and summarized, the story begins in a far-off land, in a far-off time, um, where there's a city. And the city's water source has, is, is a pond. There's a dragon that sits on top of it. And the dragon poisons the water. And so... You have to understand that this is already like deeply symbolic and important because what is the symbol of life for ancient people? It's water. If you don't have water, you die. Water is life. That's sustenance. That's sustainability. If you have water, you get life. Water is often an image of paradise in the ancient world. And so the dragon sits over the thing that gives life to the community. And he poisons it. But then the people in the city, they offer him goats and like sheep. And he eats them, and in turn, he doesn't poison the water, doesn't poison the land. Um, eventually, though, the dragon demands more. And they don't just give him goats and sheep. They have to start sacrificing people for him to eat in order not to poison the land. And eventually, then, he, he wants children and young people to eat, to sacrifice to him. And so, you know, the parents can't face the dragon, and they can't face like choosing their own child to be sacrificed and given to the dragon as food. So what they do is they invent a system, and they essentially cast lots. And whoever the lot falls on is the next child who goes and is eaten by the dragon. And so rather than facing the dragon, they let this system that they've developed choose at random one of the innocent children to be eaten. This goes on for quite some time, and eventually the lot falls on the king, which means the king's daughter, the princess, has to be sacrificed as food to the dragon. And so the king is like, 
There's got to be a loophole. Like, there's got to be a way out. Like, I'm the king. Like, we cannot sacrifice the princess. She's the princess. And the townspeople, nope. We're all in on this. We all agreed to it. And there's no way out. So the king has to offer up his daughter. And he's mourning and in grief. And as he offers her, she's sort of dressed as a bride, symbolizing her innocence. She's going as an innocent princess to be eaten by the dragon. Now follow this. Because no one is willing to face the dragon, the adults aren't willing to face the dragon. Who are the ones that bear the weight of the consequence of their sin? The children. Because the adults can't face the dragon. Because they can't gather it enough in them to challenge him. Maybe even they're going to die if they face him. But rather than face the dragon... They leave their responsibility and it's the children and particularly their innocence that pay the price. The consequence of adults not facing the dragon is children suffer. Now, luckily in this story, the princess just as a bride is put before the dragon and she's tied to a stake. And just in time, this night, St. George comes and he's a Christian and he's like, what are you all doing? I will defeat this dragon in the name of Christ. And so he goes and he gets the dragon and he ties him and essentially puts him on a leash. He disarms him. He takes out his power and he stabs him. And then he tells the people, hey, look, so you know that the power of Christ is real. I'll, I'll, kill, the dra- I'll kill the dragon, but then you need to know you all need to be baptized and accept Christ. And what, what happens in the story is, he defeats the dragon, and the whole town gets baptized. Okay. Now, do you follow this, though? What do Christians do? What do Gibor Hayels and Ishet Hayels do? Christians face the dragon. We don't run from the dragon. We face the dragon. And if we don't, who pays the price? The children will always pay the price. And some of you, you grew up where your parents didn't fight the dragon. They refused to fight it, and the dragon got bigger and bigger. And maybe it was because their parents didn't face the dragon, and the dragon got bigger and bigger. So by the time you're a kid being raised in your household, the dragon is a huge monster that you're terrified of. Nevertheless, if you do not confront it, that dragon will be all the more powerful, and you will pass on the same stuff to your kids that were passed on to you. And so Christians, in the name of Christ, we confront our dragons. We don't run from them. Ruth broke the family pattern. Boaz broke the family pattern. When you put yourself to Christ, no matter what's in your past, you can be forgiven. Because you might be saying, hey, not only um, did, did my parents pass on a dragon, I've made that dragon bigger. I'm a failure too. When you are in Christ, you are forgiven. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses. We're forgiven. He cancels the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. Then he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And what does he do to the powers, the monsters, the dragons, the serpent of old? He disarmed the rulers and authority and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
He does this in the incarnation. He looks down upon us and sees that we are flesh and blood creatures. We are flesh and blood children. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, the serpent of old. And finally, get this. Not only is Christ victorious over the serpent, but he shares his victory with you. Romans 16.20, Paul writing to Christians in the first century. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In other words, Christ faces the dragon. He defeats the serpent of old. But now he is destroying the works of the devil in and through his people. We can face our dragons because he defeated the great serpent of old, the dragon of Revelation. We come to him, we are forgiven of our sins. He gives us his spirit to empower us so that it's not us alone, but in him and through him, we become more than conquerors. And so we are not a people of fear, but of people of power and of sound mind and love. And we can confront whatever's lurking in our past or our family's past. But we do so in the name of Christ. And so what we take from this story of Ruth and Boaz is that this is what a Gibor Hayel looks like. This is what an Ishet Hayel looks like. And we are called to be these types of people. And we do so because of the grace first given to us. And then we also do so because God not only gives us his grace, but his spirit to conquer in the name of Jesus. And so wherever you're at, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven, and Christ is empowering you to face the monsters. He will not leave you nor forsake you. He will not abandon you. One of the first steps that you could do in doing this right is just acknowledging that you've been running from addressing what needs to be addressed. One of the second things you could do, it sounds so simple, but I'm telling you, just as a pastor, I've seen it work and work again. Dive into the rhythms of the church. Go to church, read your Bible, come and worship, get in community so you're doing life together alongside of other Christians. Pray fast, you do these things and you are empowered through the work of the Spirit. And so know today that you can break the patterns of your family. And if you were not inheriting any dragons, thank God for your godly parents who broke the cycle somewhere along the line and you commit to emulating them so that dragons are never back in over that pond. Let's stand as we take communion.